with you today, please open it to Acts chapter 13. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you today, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you and open it to Acts chapter 13. We continue studying through the history of the early church as recorded for us by Luke in the book of Acts. Last time we looked in chapter 12 and we were discussing and looking at the persecution as it continued to come against the early church and even specifically against some of the disciples of Jesus. We saw James, the brother of John, being executed uh, under, the, under the order of King Herod. And when Herod saw that that pleased the Jewish leaders, he had Peter arrested and, and bound in prison. And the night before he was to face his trial and, and execution, the Lord sent an angel and miraculously delivered Peter. And then we saw that, that Herod, the one overseeing these, these events, we saw him meeting his end at the, at, towards the end of chapter 12. And as we begin chapter 13 today, I do want to go back uh, a couple of verses where we left off in chapter 12, verse 24, because in spite of the enemy's desire to wipe out the church, to wipe out the work of God and the things that God is doing, notice what it says in verse 24, but... The word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Despite all of the efforts of the enemy to wipe out the word of God, to wipe out the growth of the church, to wipe out the spread of the gospel, we see that the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied, to be spread. Verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. We saw this back in chapter 11, the, the famine that was prophesied that when that came to fruition, the, the church in Antioch sent supplies down to the church in Jerusalem by, within the hand of Barnabas and Saul, who were leaders in the church there at the time in Antioch, sent these provisions down. We see in verse 25 here that they had completed that, now returning to Antioch, with a man named John, also called Mark. He will be the one who will author later the Gospel of Mark. He is a cousin of Barnabas. And he, we are going to see he will start out joining, joining Saul and Barnabas and, and then later depart. And he gets woven in and through some of the later chapters as we will see as we study through Acts. Well, here we're going to also see a shift as we begin in chapter 13, a shift in focus as Luke records for us the, the history of the church, a shift away from Peter and some of the other apostles, the church being centered in Jerusalem, largely focused on the Jews at the time, a shift towards Paul and his ministry work centered and sent out of Antioch, focused on the Gentiles. And we see that now beginning in chapter 13, where it tells us there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Interesting, just naming some of the leaders that are in the church there from different, different locations, different backgrounds, God using them in the leadership here of the church pastoring, leading, the prophets and teachers, sharing the word of God, speaking forth the truth of God to the church. 
Notice it says in verse 2, while they, the church, were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Interesting as we look about what is going on in the church at its beginning, Notice it's very important to draw uh, our attention to what it says. They were ministering not, not for the Lord. They weren't ministering about the Lord. Notice it says they were ministering to the Lord. When the church gathered together there in Antioch, it tells us they were ministering to the Lord. Now, that should pique our interest a little bit. What does that mean to minister to the Lord, because if they're doing that in the early church, shouldn't that be what we're all about as well, ministering to the Lord? Well, ministering to the Lord can take, t- takes on a lot of aspect, praising God, Get thanks, having hearts of thanksgiving, prayer, no doubt, ministering to the Lord. I think we could tie it all together with one word, and that word is worship. Now, we all probably have different varying definitions of what worship is and what worship means and what worship details. There are books you can go online and Google and you can read from now until, until you go to glory on different ideas about what worship involves. I tell you what, the one book that we ought to check with first is this one right here. <laughs> Because Paul tells us what worship as believers should be. He says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul tells us that worship... Our worship is in response to the amazing gift that has been given to us as believers. But he says that our worship is this living sacrifice that we are to give. Now that opens up another word that, again, we could have varying definitions if we went around the room as to what a sacrifice is and what a living sacrifice is. We can probably probably find varying definitions, but most would probably be around a portion of what we give that we consider sacrificial, something that 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 we're gonna have to do without. And and we can we can all come up with different ideas and explanations for that. Like when we're when we're asked to give of our time and we sacrifice that, right? Or somebody comes to us and said, hey, would you, would you help me out in this? And, oh, I suppose. And then we love to make them know that it's a sacrifice, right? You know? <laughs> I, I like to th- look at this, too, and to help us understand a little bit about what I know Paul is referring to, what it means to have this living sacrifice that is our act of worship. When we look at our breakfast plate, and we look at a breakfast plate that has bacon and eggs on it, And we see in that two forms of sacrifice, one from the chicken and one from the pig. And the sacrifice that we all like to talk about is the sacrifice of the chicken. Yeah, I gave up an egg. But the sacrifice that Paul's talking about in Romans 12.1 is the sacrifice of the bacon, the pig. And that's all in. (laughs) It's, It's an entire life that is poured out. 
It's not just a little piece of us that we give up for one hour on Sunday or here or there a little bit, 15, 20 minutes in the morning. A life poured out of sacrifice. That is what he's talking about. And that is what ministering to the Lord is all about. Giving our lives as a living sacrifice to him. And as the church did that, look what happened. It says the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, separate for me Barnabas and Saul. Now there are some that say, well, the Holy Spirit, yeah, that was part of what the Holy Spirit did back then in the church and and speaking in the church. And speaking to the church and the activity of the Holy Spirit in the church. But the problem is many looked to that back then. A.W. Tozer, I've used this quote before speaking of this even as in our study of Acts, but it bears repeating. He said that if the Holy Spirit was removed from the church in the book of Acts, 95% of what they were doing would stop immediately and everybody would notice. But the church today, church, quote unquote, the Holy Spirit was removed. of what goes on would continue just as if nothing happened, and nobody would notice. Now, I don't know how accurate that is, but I'll tell you there's a lot of truth to it. There are a lot of people, even even they can get into two different camps because of all that's gone on, and there's the the charismania that goes on, and all of the things that are credited to the Holy Spirit, and a whole bunch of things that are happening, and, and, and craziness, and people are saying, man, I want to avoid that, and others will say that all of these things that we're reading about here, the Holy Spirit speaking and everything, that was back then. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that anymore, and they get what I'll call charismoia. They get over on the other side saying, you know, we want to avoid that so much that we just say the Holy Spirit doesn't work at all anymore. Let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is still speaking today. Today. Jesus said, and it's recorded for us in the book of Revelation numerous times, he said, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And when Jesus speaks of the churches, he's not talking about the building. When you came in today, there weren't big ears outside, you know, receptacles. The church, that's us. And Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. Us as we gather, let us hear what the Spirit has to say to us. That's what ministering to God is all about. And we all have to ask ourselves this question, right? I'm just going to put it to you. Did you come here today to be ministered to or to minister to? Did you come to say, God, I want to see what you have for me? Or did you say, God, I came here to give this to you? Let me tell you the beautiful, the beautiful consequence of living a life all poured out is he pours in way more than we give out. The grace that comes our way is way more than what we sacrifice in our living sacrifice. The Bible says, David wrote for us, recorded for us, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. We have to come with that delight that says, God, whatever it is that you have, whatever you desire, we come with that heart he loves to pour out his grace and his blessing on that heart. First, changing our desires, taking the old desires, placing his new ones in there, and then dumping his blessing out. Isaiah tells us that he will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is stayed or focused on him. 
We come with a heart and a mind focused on God and what you have, Lord, whatever it is that you might have. He gives us grace. He gives us peace. James says, draw close to the Lord, and he will draw close to you. That's what the church did then. And guys, that's what we need to do today. That's what worship is. Ministering to the Lord, a life that is just poured out. And notice he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. The Holy Spirit at work, calling, speaking. And they respond. The church hears and sends. It says that they sent them away. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, again, notice, the church sent them, yes, but in response to the Holy Spirit's call and the Holy Spirit's sending, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God. That is the work to which the Holy Spirit had called them. And we will see that Paul is, and Barnabas are faithful to that work. They preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And also they had John as their helper, so John Mark goes with them. When they had gone through the whole land as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, that is the governor, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man, this man that Sergius Paulus, summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, and praise God, going forward from here on, we're going to call him Paul. We don't have this back and forth Saul-Paul thing, that confusing deal that I've been talking It's Paul from going forward. His name's not changed here. Paul's his Roman name. Saul's his Jewish Hebrew name. But we're going to go by Paul going forward. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said... You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who might lead him around by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Here we begin as we look at st starting back in, in verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, what's commonly referred to as the first missionary journey. Um, Paul has already been obviously doing a lot of work and, and mission work already, but here to identify as the first missionary journey, I have a map I had our media team put together just to kind of give us an idea. We see down in the lower right-hand corner, Jerusalem, after they had done that work of bringing the supplies down there, they returned to Antioch. And then from Antioch, they take a 15-mile journey by foot to Seleucia and then travel by boat to the island of Cyprus. And then from, once they reach there at Cyprus, Salamis is about a 100-mile journey across the island by foot again to Paphos, where they encounter this man, Bar-Jesus. That Bar means son of Jesus. Jesus was a very common name at the time. This false prophet, he's a magician, astrologer probably, a false prophet. They encounter him, but they also notice encounter this man, Sergius Paulus. He's the governor of the area, and it tells us that he's an intelligent man. 
He's a discerning person. He's one who has good judgment, and that no doubt helps him in his, in his role as the governor of the area. But the thing I want to point out to, to you is that notice who makes the contact. It wasn't that, that, that Paul and Barnabas went to him. He said, bring these guys to me. And I find that interesting. Because no doubt, as the governor, one who's watching what's going on, it's his job to keep the peace and to know what's happening in the area, all of a sudden there's this buzz that's going around. There's this word that's spreading around about these two guys that came into town, or three guys with Mark with them, and the word that they're sharing. And no doubt, again, not just the word that they're sharing, but the lives that are being changed and, and things that's ha- that are happening. And he sees that, and he's curious, and he wants to know more. And he sends to them, and he says, I want to hear this word of God that you're sharing. And I like that, because the lives that were being changed were such that it made him curious. It made people talk. And guys, I'm challenged by that, as you should be, that our lives should be that as well. But Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. This guy stands up. He tries to cause a diversion. Guys, know this, that everywhere the Lord plants seeds of truth, the enemy is going to come and plant seeds of falsehood. Wherever the Lord is doing a good work, the enemy is going to try to come and interfere with that work. That's just Jesus speaks of that in the parable of the tares among the wheat. And here's, here's the enemy trying to sow tares, trying to cause a distraction. And Paul stands up and lets him have it, both barrels. <laughs> he doesn't sugarcoat it at all. You son of the devil. <laughs> I'm like, wow, hey, it says that he's filled with the Spirit. I thought filled with the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. You know, hey, what, something happened in the download there that you know, got, got the program all messed up because he's just son of the devil because I don't think he said, hey, son of the devil. You know, I think that he had veins popping out of his neck and he was, he was furious as to what is taking place. So what's, what's the deal? Guys, there's another part of being filled with the Holy Spirit and that's discernment. And that's an understanding and a sensitivity towards the, the work of God and those that are being affected by that work. And here we see a display of what many call righteous anger. Now, I have seen displays of what people call righteous anger that have nothing to do with righteousness. But they'll give it that definition. Oh, don't come down on me, pastor. It's righteous anger. Let me just give you one litmus test that'll, dis- that'll get rid of most of what people call righteous anger right off the bat. If it's, uh, it has anything to do about you, it's not righteous. If it has to do with something somebody said about you, somebody did to you, something, anything like that, and you are angry because of that, no matter how holy and pious you want to make it sound, and that's not righteous anger. We, we, have, we have no right. God tells us, do not take any vengeance or action on things that have been done to you. He says, let that to me. You leave that to me. We have examples, one here and several examples in Jesus' case of when that is, that is allowed. And that only comes when it is, something is being attacked. The word of God is being attacked or innocent other individuals being attacked. Notice here, this has completely to do with the word of God. Somebody trying to step in the way of that and he says, back down. And we see this false prophet 
outlined, and, and Paul, being a true prophet here, says, because of this, you're going to be struck with blindness. You're not going to be able to see. And it tells us immediately then that he was blinded, reaching around somebody, you know, people to take him around to show him where to go. And as Sergius Paulus witnesses this, he becomes a believer. But notice, it wasn't the action that he saw that had the biggest effect. Verse 12, he believed when he saw what happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. We sang that earlier. He stands alone. We stand amazed. Here he is amazed. When he heard the truth of the gospel, that the creator God would, would take my place and pay my penalty, pay my sin debt, that amazed him, and he becomes a believer. Converted, shocked by what he saw, no doubt, but amazed by what he heard. Well, we see now this work here in this area is done. It says, verse 13, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John, Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, please say it. If we can have the, the map put up again real quickly, we can see that the, the, the journey being done now, Paphos to Perga, they get on another boat, about 175-mile journey by boat. Once they land again on land, they head north about another 100 miles to Pisidian Antioch, different from the Antioch city, obviously, as you can see by the map where they originated. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, there are several cities named Antioch at this time, just like Caesarea. There were several different Caesareas. This one identified here as Pisidian Antioch. And we're told that once they landed on land again, John Mark leaves them, and he returns back to Jerusalem. And we're not told why. We're not given any indication as to why. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of, a lot of ideas out there. He was anything from when he was homesick to where he might have been physically sick or anything like that. We're not told. One possible reason is because, as I mentioned earlier, that he is a cousin of Barnabas. And I don't know if you notice something that is very subtle, but it's very important that we see a shift again in what is going on, in what God is doing here, in, even in this ministry that, we're, that is right before us. Notice back, as we looked in verse 25 in chapter 12, it said, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. When we read, it said that, that separate, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So here we see Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Notice verse 13. Now Paul and his companions. Look ahead to verse 42. It says, as Paul and Barnabas were going out. Verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. You see the change? All of a sudden now, Paul is starting to kind of step out in the forefront as the leader. To this point, Barnabas had been that, had that role. And some believe that Mark took issue with that, and that's why he left. We don't know. But the one thing I do want to point out that we do know is the person who didn't have a problem with the change, and that's Barnabas. 
We don't read anywhere that Barnabas had a problem at all with Paul being the one that is now stepping to the forefront. It's not like, hey, wait a second, bro, this is my ministry. I, I Remember, I went and got you. None of that. It's because, again, we see in this Barnabas, a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit, as we saw, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, a man of encouragement, somebody who has zero agenda of his own, simply looking for God, what it is that you desire to do, whether that's you call me out to be out front or you call me to step back, whatever it is. I love Barnabas. What a heart. What a, what a, what a, what a man that God can use. The church needs a lot of Barnabases or Barnabai, or whatever, whatever the plural of that is. <laughs> Hearts that are saying, God, what, it is, what is it that you desire to do? Again, going back to that ministering to the Lord. And he hears this, and he understands this, and we see as this is given, this opportunity, and I, and I love this. It says that they, they go to the, the synagogue, and they sit down, they open up the scroll, they read as they always do, sections of the scripture, and then they turn to Paul and Barnabas and said, hey, do you guys have anything you'd like to say? <laughs> Tell me that's not a divine setup. And we see in the next verse, yeah, Paul stood up, you bet I do. <laughs> Absolutely, I'd love to share with you. Paul was ready. Paul was ready. They didn't know. It wasn't like, it wasn't like they had invited him two weeks earlier. I had the opportunity to go down last week and, and share at Calvary Chapel Sierra Vista, but he gave me plenty of heads up. I knew I was going, so I got a chance to get a message ready and the whole thing. Paul didn't have that. They didn't know that this was going to happen this day. He had to be ready. And guys, we all have to be ready. We never know when that opportunity is going to come, when somebody is going to open that door for us. Chances are it's not going to be that you're going to be sit, you go to a visit a church someday and the pastor doesn't show up and somebody goes, hey, do you have something you want to say? Probably not quite like this, but you never know at work or in your neighborhood when that opportunity might be opened where they're saying, man, I'm really struggling with this. What should I do? And we see in this outline, I'll just kind of give you a little heads up on the outline as, we, as we're going to look at, at Paul's first recorded sermon for us. First of all, he starts on common ground. And then he quotes scripture, and then he presents the gospel. And guys, that's a great outline to just remember. Whenever the, that opportunity might be opened up for us, start on that common ground that you have. Share the word of God because there's power in the word of God and share the gospel. Let's see as we look at this message together, and we'll read it largely in large part together as we continue, beginning in verse 16. It says, Paul, taking advantage of this, stood up, motioning his, with his hand and said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, men of Israel, Jews, and you who fear God, Gentiles who are also there, he's got a mixed audience, he says, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. He chose them. They didn't choose him. He chose them and made the people great. It was by his power. He made them great. During their stay in the land of Egypt, with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. 
When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. Again, here, relating to them, this common ground. They had just been talking about the scriptures and reading from the scriptures. He's relating with that. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised, him, he raised up David to be the king, concerning him who he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. He goes back and hearkens to the promise that God made to David that through his descendants the Messiah would come. And here Paul boldly proclaims to this largely Jewish audience, but here in the synagogue, that that Messiah is Jesus. After John, that John the Baptist, had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Pointing out the forerunner, John the Baptist, who came before Jesus, proclaiming that Jesus, again, the Messiah. Verse 26, Brethren, Sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of his, prof of his prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. He points out that those who condemned Jesus to death, those religious leaders, read the prophets every Sabbath. All of the prophecies that pointed to Jesus coming, to being betrayed, to being turned over, to being crucified, all of those, they totally missed it and actually played a part in fulfilling the prophecies. Verse 28, though they found no ground of putting him to death, they asked Pilate for him to be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in the tomb. They had him executed, hung on a cross, laid him in a tomb when he died, verse 30, but God. Remember our conjunction lesson from a couple of weeks ago, I love that, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. That verse 30, but God raised him from the dead, is the turning point in this sermon. To this point again, that, that there, he's, he's relating to them, he's sharing with them these things. Now he's going to bring the word of God, the scriptures back to them. But, but the turning point again, but God raised him from the dead, the crucial point and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled his promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay. He has also spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. 
But he, Jesus, whom God raised, did not undergo decay. Notice he keeps coming back to this. Jesus raised from the dead. And the vital importance of that. He's sharing with them again, referring back to their own scriptures, in the, in describing the gospel, describing Jesus suffering and dying, rising from the dead. Verse 33, he quotes Psalm 2, verse 7, where it says, Today I have begotten you. And he points to the fact that that's not about Jesus' incarnation. It's about his resurrection. When Jesus raised from the dead, Verse 34, talking about not only the fulfilled promise, but the faith, that God is faithful to his covenant, the covenant that he made with David, the one he referenced earlier, but here he comes back to it again, that through the seed of David, the Messiah will come. And guys, this covenant that he made would not, would not matter at all. It would be totally false if the Messiah died and stayed in the grave. But he said he's, that God raised him from the dead. And it's unlike any other resurrection, as he points out in Psalm, quoting Psalm 16, verse 10, that he will not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. Now, David was the human author of that, and he points out that obviously David wasn't talking about himself because David died, his body decayed, his bones are still there in Jerusalem. His body underwent decay. He was speaking of the coming Messiah, the one that would come through his line, that when God raised him, he raised him incorruptible, never to see decay, eternal life in and through him. Now, he says all of this, and again, here we get to the point now, we've talked about the common ground, we've talked about the scriptures, here we get to the gospel, verse 38, therefore, because of this, because God raised him from the dead, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, through Jesus, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Here he brings it to the, the point of the forgiveness of sins, being freed, the freedom that can only, be, that can only come through him, it can't come through the law. Now, no doubt in that room that Paul is proclaiming this, there were some that were hearing this message and were going, so what's the big deal? What, why is this so important? I hear you. I kind of get where you're trying to connect some dots here, but, but what's, what's the bottom line? And I have no doubt that in a room this size, there are a few of you who might even be saying that yourself. What, what's, the, what's really the big deal? I get this. I've heard this all before. What's really the big deal? Here's the big deal. Guys, there is a sovereign, holy, creator God who created all things, who in his hand all things are held together, who is in control of all things, and who we are fully accountable to. Whether you, want to. whether you want to come to admit that or not, it doesn't change the truth of the matter. And because he is the creator God, and because there is an attribute about him that trumps all others, and that is he is holy. And his holiness encompasses everything that is about him. 
And part of that is that he is, yes, he is a loving God, he is a caring God, but he is a just and he is a righteous God. And because of that, he cannot ignore sin. He cannot just push sin aside, pretend it doesn't happen. And guys, that, therein lies the problem. Because all of us have sinned. Every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we will all stand, we all have to stand before a holy and righteous judge to give an account. And let's just put this into a, an, a drama or a courtroom drama that we can understand. We stand before the judge and the evidence is laid out. And by the way, it is thorough and complete. Every bit of evidence is, is, is put out before us. Every bit. Every thought. Every word. Every action. Every intent behind every action. You might think that, hey, nobody saw that, man. Nobody can prove anything. God saw it. And yes, he can prove it. He'll play it back for you. You might say, nobody heard me say that. God heard every word. God heard every thought. And we stand before a holy and righteous God and the verdict come down, comes down, guys, and there's only one verdict, guilty as charged. And the Bible is clear as to what the sentence is, and the sentence is death. The wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but eternal spiritual death. Facing the wrath of God, separated from the love of God for eternity in hell. That is the sentence. And that's why this is such a big deal. Because Paul tells us the secret to it here. The only thing that can save us from that, guys, is to be completely acquitted of all charges. To be forgiven of our sins. And that only happens one way. Paul uses a term that says freed from all things. It's translated here. It's translated in other places as justified. To be justified means to stand and be declared righteous. To be declared righteous innocent. The word justified, I, I love this way is to help us remember what justified means. It means just as if I'd never sinned. But it does not mean it's just as if the sin never took place. Because if God did that, like I said, he wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be righteous. The sin took place. And because there is sin, like I said, the penalty is death. So if I don't pay the penalty, somebody else had to. And that's why it says through him, through him. The Bible tells us that he, Jesus, became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took our rightful place. He hung and died on the cross paying the full sin debt for you and I so that we can stand before a holy and righteous God justified justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Now, I know that that news sounds way too good to be true. And I know for the room, for the most of us, this isn't the first time you've heard this, but you need to hear it again. I want everybody to hear this again because this is a truth that isn't available to just some of us. He says everyone, everyone who believes can have this. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But it's important that we understand what believes means because there's a, there's a lot of confusion about that too. It's not just some mental assent. 
Paul tells us that if, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That's a promise from the word of God. But what does it mean to confess with our mouth? What does it mean to believe in our heart? Again, we can go around and have a whole lot of definitions about that, but the Bible is clear, and the, Bible, the understanding of that is clear. To confess means to say the same thing as. So if we confess Jesus is Lord, that means we agree with everything that God says about what that means, that he's the creator, that he is all-powerful, that he is in control, that what he calls sin is sin, that who he calls a sinner is a sinner, and that he is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. That's what it means to confess that he is Lord. But what does it mean that to believe that, that God raised him from the dead? Because it says that that's a vital part to this too. To believe that God raised him from the dead doesn't just mean that, oh yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm, I, I'm all right with that. Let me illustrate it this way. There was a man named Charles Blondin going back 150 years ago or so, and he was world famous at the time as a tightrope walker. And he did amazing feats walking on the high wire act. And one particular time, he had a tightrope stretched across Niagara Falls. And he walked back and forth on it several different times with diff carrying different things and doing everything. Then he grabbed a wheelbarrow. And he said, how many of you believe that I can push this wheelbarrow across the tightrope and back? And everybody raised their hand. He says, I want to ask that again. How many of you believe that I can push this wheelbarrow across and back? Everybody raised their hand. He pointed to one who had their hand up and he said, get in the wheelbarrow. That's what it means to believe that God raised him from the dead. We can all sit around here this morning and say, yeah, I believe that. But to get into the wheelbarrow means I believe that and that alone saves me. I'm not relying anymore on anything that I've done or that I can do. I'm not relying on anything other than the fact that Jesus died for me and I believe that God raised him from the dead and because of that, I can have my sins forgiven. I can stand justified. That's what it means. And as we close this morning, I want to look at these last couple of verses because here we can see some different reactions to that message. And again, I know that there are people here today, all of us, by the way, have to respond to that message continually. But notice it says, verse 40, therefore, because of this truth, he says, take heed. That means listen up and respond so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your day, a work which you will never believe, though somebody should describe it to you. As he completes, verse 42 says, As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and other God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. That means they gave their lives to Jesus and, and accepted what the, what, what the gospel that was presented to them. Who speaking to them then were urging them to continue in the grace of God. So we've heard the gospel, the same gospel as Paul presented it. And as Paul says here, he says to them, don't, don't push this away. Don't, don't deny this. And if you're here today, 
and you've never given your life to Jesus. You've never trusted. You've never gotten all in the wheelbarrow and trusted in his completed work and for that alone, for your salvation. Don't deny it anymore. Don't, don't push it off. As he said, take heed to this message. Respond today. But respond today. Don't delay. Notice that some of them said, hey, come back next Sabbath. Share this again with us next time. And many people hear the message and they say, you know what? I've heard that and it sounds good, but I'm not ready yet. Uh, maybe next week. Guys, you're not promised one more breath, much less one more day or one more week. Respond today. If that is you, the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, respond today. But for the rest of us, as we're going to spend some time in worship now, I'll have the, the worship team come up, that, that we worship together. And remember what I had mentioned at the outset, what worship is. That's ministering to God Asking him to have his way as we worship him, as we sing his praises, as we even pray to him as we're singing. Allow him to speak to us and we respond in that. Notice he said that at the end of, that, at the end of our text here today, that he was continuing, urging them to continue in grace. Guys, it starts with grace. It says, by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, we've been saved. But it doesn't, it's not a one-time grace thing, guys. It's a continual grace thing. And as we go before him and as we lift our, our hands to him and, and worship and we praise and we, and we give him that opportunity to minister to us, respond as he leads. Respond as he guides. Respond in, to his grace. I know, I know, there's there, some of you here, and, and I, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'll give you one, <laughs> blew it this week at some point. And, and we just go and we say, somehow we can, so we can get off track with that and we say, I got to make up for this, I got to do this, I got to sacrifice something here. No, what he wants is just again, God, I blew it. And his response, I know. Not telling him anything new. He doesn't know. God, I need your grace. He's like, I know. Here it is. Would you stand with me? As we worship, again, the Holy Spirit will be speaking. And he'll be speaking to any heart who is willing to hear. And if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart today and, and prompting you to respond, you've never given your life to Jesus, you never trusted in him and him alone for your salvation, I want to ask you to step forward, to come forward up front. We're, I'm going to be up front here. I'll have a couple other pastors and elders up front here, prayer team members. We'd like an opportunity to pray with you, to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, or to give your life back to him. Perhaps you've wandered away and you want to recommit your life to Jesus please come up and, and do that today. Respond. Don't put it off. You might be thinking, man, what are people going to think? What's going to be the response? I can tell you, we're going to rejoice with the angels in heaven. <laughs> and if, 
If you're reluctant, if you're nervous about that, of coming up by yourself, ask the person next to you. They'll come up with you. But don't delay. Don't put it off. Respond today. And let's, let's minister to the Lord together this morning and let the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts and let's respond as he does.